0: Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 16:14 through 17:58. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 239. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war. Prudent in speech and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Would you pray with me this morning? Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, would you help even now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we come before your word be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. It's a privilege. I'm glad to be able to preach God's word again and open this up again uh, for us this morning. If you're a visitor here with us, we are a little bit over halfway through a sermon series walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And today we're going to come to two stories, one that you just heard read. But these two stories feel like they are contrasts in a lot of ways. One of them is just a few short verses. The other is the longest chapter in the book. One of these stories takes place inside a king's court in some relative privacy, it seems. The other is before two standing armies facing one another. One of these is an obscure story that you've maybe heard, but may have forgotten is in the Bible. And one is the probably the most well-known story in the Old Testament, is my guess. But, but for all their differences between the end of First Samuel 16 and then we'll look at First Samuel 17 as well, there are some overlapping themes that I hope we see as we come through our text that kind of bind these together. So from, from these couple of passages this morning, here's the main point, what I hope we see God showing us through this text. Because God's faithful one stood firm to deliver his people, we can follow him in faith. Because God's faithful one delivered his people, we can follow him in faith. I've been praying just this week as I've been looking at this text that we would find our faith strengthened, that you, brothers and sisters, would find your faith strengthened as we look to our faithful Lord Jesus today. Now let's remember kind of where we are, kind of gets back into where we are, the story of First Samuel. So in the first half of First Samuel 16, what we looked at last week Remember, uh, Saul has been rejected as king and the Lord tells Samuel, the prophet, stop grieving. I've made a new king from among Jesse's sons. You're going to go and anoint him. And so Saul, I'm sorry, Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint this new king. And he thinks it's going to be the eldest, the most most likely candidate. But he gets there and the Lord says, you're you're looking with kind of human eyes. But you need to see with my sight. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we said this is a key verse in the book. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We'll actually even see that play out in some ways in our text this morning as well. So instead of it being this eldest son, Eliab, the the most likely candidate, it's the youngest son, David, who is the chosen future king. And at the very end of, chapter, uh, of what we looked at last week, in verse 13 of chapter 16, you can just look in your Bible up one verse from this morning's passage. This is how that text ended. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And really, it's this sp- mention of the Spirit of the Lord that's going to tie us to the text this morning. As I think are why this is put here. So, verse 13, as we look at the story of David and Saul, in verse 13, the Spirit rushes upon David, and in verse 14, we read that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, I I'd, I'd normally, I don't like breaking up a, a story, but I'm, be, I'm getting, best, uh, wait, I'm getting words mixed up. Here. I'm betting, or guessing, not besting, I'm guessing that some of you may have questions about what you read in this verse here. And I want to address some of those briefly. So if your question is about the first part of this verse, the Lord's Spirit departs from Saul. Just remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit and the way he acts is slightly different than what we see in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon certain people called to specific callings to deliver God's people, to work for God's people. So you see prophets who have the Spirit descend upon them, and and here you have kings who have the Spirit descend upon them, those who are anointed as king. So what we understand when Saul says, when it's said that the Spirit departs from Saul, he's still the king, but for the rest of this book, Saul is serving as a king with no divine empowerment, no godly authority. You are going to see Saul descend further and further as we go throughout this book, because the spirit has left him. And then the second part of this verse, if your question is there, what about this harmful spirit from the Lord tormenting him? This is an incident that we see in the Old Testament, in the Bible, really, where the Lord uses secondary agents, somebody or something else, as an act of judgment, Okay, This is not uncommon in the Bible. It just maybe strikes us here because it's so abrupt. But the the story of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 is a story of God using a flood to judge mankind. The story of the exile to Babylon is a story of God using Babylonian kings to judge the people of Israel. And here, this story here is God sending a harmful spirit as an act of judgment against Saul. However, I would say that this is not just like, I'm I'm going to make Saul's life miserable. There's purpose behind some of this as well. Saul is not a king who's so far gone that he has no hope. This is meant to be an opportunity for repentance for Saul as well. Where is Saul going to turn in his torment? Will he admit, repent, turn back to the Lord? or Will he continue to try to rule his way? The rest of the book will kind of answer that question for us. And if you have more questions about those, about this verse, I'm happy to talk about this afterwards. But, but we do need to ask more than just what is happening in this verse. Like answer my questions. Why? Why does the author put this verse right here? I think it's because right here, once you see Saul and David together over and over throughout the book, we're going to see a strong and stark contrast. Between the future king who has God's Spirit and this former king who does not, who is bereft of God's Spirit. Or in, in other words, this is I think on your note sheet, the presence of or the lack of the Spirit of the Lord changes everything. And that's what our author is wanting to highlight. Now left without the Holy Spirit, tormented by this harmful Spirit, Saul's servants say, we've got a plan. You know, when I feel down and anxious and depressed, I love soothing jazz lyre. That's what does it for me. So that's what they tell Saul. We need to find a harpist, someone who can play something that will put your mind at ease. And thankfully, there's this young man in verse 18 who knows just the right guy. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. That's that's the same lesson that we actually just saw taught again. The presence of the Spirit of the Lord changes everything. And what Saul needs, what this servant, this faithful young servant realizes is that Saul doesn't just need someone who's skillful at playing a harp. He needs someone who has the Lord's presence with him. Because what is happening is not just a physical battle for Saul. It is a spiritual battle. That's one reason we read earlier, Ephesians 6, what's happening in Saul is a spiritual battle. And soothing music is not the thing that's going to cut it by itself. He needs someone who's empowered by God's Spirit to deliver God's people. And so David comes to Saul, and in verse 23 we read, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul... David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. All right, kids, question for you. There are There's a book of the Bible that we have that is written in large part, not all of it, but a lot of it is written by David. Anyone know what book that is of the Bible? Chandler. Psalms, that's right. The book of Psalms is filled over and over and over with songs that are written by David. And I just want to suggest that probably I think what's happening here is not just David is so good on the harp that he just drives out the spirit and he hates the this harmful spirit really hates the liar. I think what happens is that as David is praising the Lord, he's engaging in musical warfare, musical spiritual warfare on behalf of King Saul. Even think about some of the things that David writes in the Psalms. This is from Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Or later in that Psalm, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This little story I think in some ways is an appetizer for what's to come. Just kind of wet, wet your appetite for chapter 17, because facing a giant is going to get more headlines, and, and using a sling and some stones is probably like grabs our attention a little bit more than a guy singing with a harp. But even here, even here in chapter 16, David picks up some unlikely weapons, lyre and music, and he does battle against a spiritual enemy to bring peace to god's people and friends if you want to think through what what does this mean why how do we apply something like this i i can't promise that like if you go around your house or drive in your car and you put on some christian music that life is just going to be calm and soothing sometimes it'll sometimes christian music is really bad it'll actually make you angry but but i can tell you when when we're here when, when we are with one another, when you want to think through how can I encourage and do even spiritual warfare on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ, God gives us his words. And when we are singing, when you are singing by yourself, and I want to just tell you, when you're singing here, in particular on Sunday morning with and for one another, your job, Christian, is taking up Spiritual weapons, the praise of God on your lips, and pushing back darkness in your brothers and sisters around you. You are doing spiritual warfare in singing, uh, "Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer, my Shore and my Foundation, in which I will never be moved." All of these things we are singing to fight back darkness. Filled with his spirit, we are working with and for one another. This is what we were saying this earlier. This is on your sheet. Jesus, the name that charms our fears and bids our sorrows cease. It's his music in the sinner's ear. It's his life and health and peace. Even, even here, this little kind of forgotten story, we see God's spirit-empowered king doing warfare, spiritual warfare for, on behalf of God's people. Now, if that sounds like an unimpressive kind of story, if you think, that's that's great. The chapter to come is like where you see the fireworks. It's where you see a more menacing physical enemy and much worse odds. This is where we get to the story of David and Goliath. The first few verses really set the scene for us, right? So there's these two mountains on one mountainside. You've got the army of the Philistines. On the other mountainside, you have the army of Israel. There's this valley called the Valley of Elah right in the middle. And in verse 4, we meet the first main character of our story. There came out from the camp the Philistines of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now in, in some of the research that I was doing, the average height of, this is, of, of like a male Israelite around this time is like five foot three. So a little bit shorter than the average height of, of an American male. So an Israelite in this day was about five foot three. We don't have an exact height for Saul. A cubit is like the list, the distance from your elbow to your fingertips. So if you're really tall, your cubit's longer. If you're shorter, then your cubit's shorter. But estimates range anywhere from like on the low end, seven foot something, to the high end of nine feet, nine inches. And regardless, if you're a five foot three Israelite, some guy who is like Andre the Giant is terrifying to you. This is a menacing enemy. And not only is he huge, but he's outfitted with the best military technology of the day. Look at look at verse 5. This is the, one of the longest descriptions of armor in the Bible, but he had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is like 125 pounds of armor. So don't think tall, gangly guy. Think big, hulking monster, and you're closer to the point. And the ESV here says that this is a, a coat of mail, uh, don't think like medieval castle coat of mail. These are like slivers of bronze that are laid across his armor so that it, when you look at him from a long distance, it looks like scales. He, he's made to look big and scary and menacing. So most other translations here say scale armor. He would look like a fish or even like a serpent from a distance. Verse six, he has a bronze, he has bronze armor on his legs. He has a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, like 15 pounds. His shield bearer went before him. He has so much armor, he has somebody else carrying a huge shield out in front of him. His own personal force field walking in front of him. He is like a tank of a man. Uh, there's, there's these pictures and, and some of these stories that came out in World War II when Germany invaded Poland. Like, a good percentage of Poland's army were cavalry. They, they rode horses. And Germany invaded with panzers, which are tanks. This is what is happening here. There's a man standing over there who's in a tank. And we've just got horses. He is big and strong. He carries all of the greatest military might. And then verse 8 brings the challenge of why he came out here. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him... Then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This is not an unheard of tactic. You have armies on two mountainsides. If they decide to go in the middle, it's a bloodbath. If one of them decides to go up and fight the other, it's a bloodbath. And so they stand there and it's maybe not common, but not unheard of, that one man would come out and say, I'm going to fight on behalf of my army. I'm going to be the champion for the Philistines. And they would do battle as representatives for the others. So here the Philistines have their champion. He's come down and ready to go, but who should be Israel's champion? Who should come down and be Israel's champion? Do you remember this in First Samuel chapter 8? The people look to Samuel and they say, There shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And and then there's this description in chapter nine of first Samuel, where we're told about Saul from his shoulders upward. He was taller than any of the people. This whole story has set us up so that we should think Saul is Israel's champion. He's the one who should be going out there. The tall man, the king, meant to go out and fight for God's people. But where is Saul in this story? Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The spirit changes everything. The lack of the spirit changes everything. And Saul, no longer empowered, is no longer the delivering king that Israel needs. He's now slinking back and shirking his responsibility, running with the rest of Israel. And sadly, as goes the king, so goes the nation. If you read that and feel discouraged, the narrator wants us to find courage, even just in the next two words. Now, David. Now, David. Good tidings of great joy. Here comes one who is, we know now, anointed to be the king. Now David's three oldest brothers, they've been fighting with the army of Saul. And David has been going back and forth. He's been serving Saul in the court. He's been going back to keep sheep at his father's house in Bethlehem. And then one day, Jesse tells David, I want you to go bring some supplies to your brothers. Check on them and see how they are. And look at what happens in verse 23. And he, as David, talked with his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? These words in verse 26, these are David's first words in the Bible. I don't know if you noticed that, but David says nothing in chapter 16. In verse, in chapter 17, like he says nothing. His first words are here. And it's another place where we just see the stark contrast between David and Saul and even David and all of Israel before him. Let's look at the speech of the men of Israel in verse 25. They, they flee from Goliath. And they're saying, have you seen that guy? He's huge. Can't do anything against him. You can hear terror at the weaponry that he has. Intimidation at how high, how tall he is. He's an imposing enemy. And they, as we heard in the first part of chapter 16, they're looking with their own sight. They're seeing as man sees. And when we get to David, we see that he has spiritual eyes. That he's actually looking not as man sees, but as God sees. He is telling Israel and he's telling us that if you want to view this battle rightly, don't look, don't look out there, but look up. Look up. The giant is a war machine, yes, but what does David call him? who is this uncircumcised Philistine? This guy out there in the battlefield, he looks imposing, but he's just another man. And it's telling that for 25 verses before this, God is mentioned nowhere. And it is in the voice and the words of David that he says, that guy is just an uncircumcised Philistine. We fight as the army of the living God. David has shifted his sight and our sight upwards. There's not been a champion name for Israel. There's no man yet willing to go out and fight Goliath. But with spiritual eyes open, David says, it doesn't matter which man. There is God on our side. And friends, it does not matter how imposing the odds look if you have a living God on your side. Now David's eldest brother Eliab, he looks on him and he says, "You know, David, I know you're being, you're just talking a big game. You're here just to see the battle. You're trying to to show us up." But Saul hears it, and I mean, Saul seems to be out of options, right? There's it's been forty days. We're told that this has been happening, and Saul has nobody else to go to. So he he says, "Bring bring David." But even Saul continues to see with the eyes of flesh. Verse 33, Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Saul is, again, just like the rest of Israel. He keeps looking at these two people. Look at Goliath. He's huge. You're a youth, and he has been lopping off heads since he was your age. What are you going to do against that guy? And again, David's vision is focused elsewhere. Saul is saying, just look at the two of you. And David, who has already kind of looked up and said, we serve a living God, now he looks backwards to God's faithfulness. He shifts our vision and says, God has already delivered me in so many ways. I have seen him do this and he is trustworthy. The pattern of David's life over and over again is that the Lord has empowered him to deliver sheep and to destroy predators. And as David looks on this battle, all he says is this is that just bigger. God can deliver The sheep of his pasture Israel and destroy a serpentine predator like Goliath David can trust this God because God has been faithful to him all along so Saul does agree to let David go and be Israel's champions go the Lord be with you which thankfully for Saul he is the Lord is with David but Saul is still has his gaze fixed on the battlefield. Remember, he tells David, hey, here's my armor. This is probably the best armor that we've got in Israel. It may not match up to, to Goliath's, but try it on. He tries it on and says it's not tested. It doesn't fit. It's not what he's used to. It's not what he needs. So he takes off that armor and he goes and gets his staff and a sling and five smooth stones. And he goes towards battle, walks out towards Goliath. And what's a good battle without some good trash talking? Which is what happens for several verses here in the middle, and that's what Goliath starts doing. He sees this youth coming to him, and he start. All he sees is a guy coming out with a, a staff. He says, Are, "Am I a dog that you've come after me with sticks? You're not even taking me seriously." And then in, in verse 44, we actually see that Goliath starts to curse David by his gods. Now that's that's not that that. Goliath has started, like, saying curse words towards David. It's like Goliath has started saying, calling upon his gods to kill, to destroy David. Now, we, we've we actually heard about these gods before, one of these gods, at least, earlier. There's a, a god, the chief god of the Philistines, was mentioned back in chapter 5. He was named Dagon. Now, if you remember the story of Dagon in chapter 5, but There, the Ark of the Covenant came into the temple of Dagon. And do you remember what happened to him? Jackson, you remember what happened to Dagon? What happened? He fell down. He fell down one night, and he's like submitting at the Ark of the Covenant. They put him back up, and the next night, he falls down. But he's not just down, he's out for the count this time. Because Dagon's head has been cut off, and his hands have been cut off. It should be kind of sobering, and maybe even telling us some things that may be coming in the future for this man who looks to his gods to deliver him. So he he is looking to Dagon, calling upon Dagon to help him, and David responds with his own smack talk. He recognizes now, this is not just David versus Goliath. The story may be better said, it's not David versus Goliath, it's not just like the army of Israel, the army of the Philistines. This is a battle now of the gods. This is Yahweh, the Lord, versus Dagon. And so David says, I'm confident. I feel pretty confident how this is going to turn out. I will destroy you and feed you to the birds of the air. When he says why this is going to do, he's confident in God's victory. He says, God's going to win this for for two specific kind of reasons here. At the end of verse 46, if you're looking down, he says, We will win. God will gain victory so that... All the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So that everyone who sees this, everyone who hears this story, even reads it today, would know that this God is not a figment of David's imagination, but is the living God who actually does fight for his people. And then, second, God means to teach all assembled there, both Israelite and Philistine. That God is not dependent upon the mightiest warriors. He does not need the latest military equipment. Now what is David's little phrase? The battle is the Lord's. The battle belongs to the Lord. Not Goliath. Not even David. It's God's battle. Now that's a lot of build up to this battle. And if if you are making a movie about David and Goliath, that's like intro and then you want like long drawn out battle scene. Where we want all the action, but this is a really quick sequence because the battle is just—it's so outmatched. Goliath versus the living God is not much of a battle. That's what happens in verse 48 when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. They don't even name Goliath anymore in the story. He's just the Philistine from here on out, by the way. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, so Goliath's sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. You become like what you worship. And here, Goliath becomes like his headless god, Dagon. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. David is victorious. God's people who've been frightened, kinda of hiding in the back, they now enjoy the spoils of victory. They follow their champion to chase away the Philistines. Now that's that's the story. And you walk through that, I hope there's, we stop briefly just to show some things of thinking about applying this, so looking up and looking back, there's good ways to think how we take and apply this, but I think that this story that is so well known is also just has a lot of people that don't exactly know what to do with it, or maybe even just misuse it in some ways. So uh, there, there's a prominent author who has a TED Talk, and it's got several million views, his argument throughout that talk is that this is a woefully misunderstood story. He would say that Goliath actually seems to have some sort of disease. So he's probably blind and nearly crippled. And David is not just a little boy. He's a, he's a master tactician. He knows exactly how to go to battle against this big giant. And his, this is kind of his conclusion. Giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. The moral of the story for for this author is fight smart and look for weaknesses. Okay, There's another popular author who represents what I think is a host of really shallow reading of this text and what is a lot of really bad preaching about this passage. He reflects on one verse in the passage, and he says, When David saw Goliath on the battlefield, everything in his mind told him, He's too big. You better run the other way, just like everyone else in the army is doing. But the scripture says David ran quickly to attack Goliath. David knew that if he didn't confront this giant, if he didn't face his fear, he would miss his destiny. The moral of the story for this author is, is you've got to face your fears if you want your best life now. Let the reader understand. But there is and there are major problems, I think, with these readings and others. Uh, On the one hand, it feels like they didn't read the story, just the parts that they really like. But on the other, I would suggest that they're missing that this story lies within an entire Bible filled with these kinds of stories. And that the first place that we look is not saying, what do I do with this? How do I apply this to my life? We're going to get there, I promise. But the first thing we should ask is, what is this passage teaching us about the God that we worship? Don't think about what do we do, but what is this God like? So we want to move, I want to move to point number three in your outline, David and Jesus. And I want to back the camera out from the Valley of Elah around the time of 1000 B, the time of 1000 B.C. or so looking at David. I want to back it out really to not just go straight to the New Testament. I want to back us out all the way to the beginning. All the way back to Genesis 3 and the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, you remember this story, sin enters the world as Adam and Eve disobey God and the Lord pronounces curses upon the, 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 the serpent, upon the ground, upon childbearing, and amid all of these curses, God utters a word of hope. This is this is what is commonly called the first gospel. So speaking to the serpent, one who has deceived, God says this, I will put enmity or hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's that little promise in Genesis 3.15 that sets into motion the rest of the storyline of the Bible. Over and over and over, God raises up offspring from the seed of the woman who go and do battle against the seed of the serpent. Those who would fight and do anything possible to destroy God's people. And so when we get to 1 Samuel 17... And we stop and the author gives this detailed description of armor and says, you know, he's wearing armor that looks like scales. We should think, what is this man meant to look like? Because he's meant to look like a serpent. He is an offspring of the serpent, clothed in mail to make, even make him look snake-like as he's coming into battle. And if that's the case, then it shouldn't come as a surprise when we see the end of this story. So, what James Hamilton, professor, says, It's surely no coincidence that when the seed of the woman named David lets fly his stone, the uncircumcised Philistine seed of the serpent, who defied the armies of the living God, gets struck on the forehead. The seed of the woman, the promised anointed one coming, once again crushes the head of the serpent. Now, of course, David is not our ultimate hope. He's not the one where we say he's the end goal and he's the final fulfillment of what we see in Genesis 3.15. David is is more like a billboard driving along the interstate saying, keep going, there's hope. God is still answering his promises and you can keep looking forward to that. The real hope, though, is coming. And so when you get to the New Testament and we find Jesus, one of David's descendants, the seed of the woman, again, locked in mortal combat against the seed of the serpent, we shouldn't be surprised at what happens. There, there is certainly some surprise that comes, though, because when, when the seed of the woman, Jesus, confronts the serpent, we actually get kind of two funerals. And the first funeral is the one for Jesus He is the one who is bruised and battered and ultimately killed. It looks at first like a complete reversal of the promise that God has made. But the promise was that the heel of the seed of the woman would be struck, not his head. And so in three days' time, as Jesus draws breath and lives again, his heel is bruised, but his head is still there. And he rises victoriously and puts to death hell, the devil, and death itself. This is the decisive blow against the head of the ancient serpent that you see all throughout the Bible. So before we read the story and ask, am I like David? Am I strong and mighty? Can I face the giants facing me? Before we ask any question like that, we should be asking, do I have a champion like David who has fought to deliver me? Do I have one who has gone and done this on my behalf? It's really natural to read stories in the Bible and to say, I want to put myself in their shoes. I want to find where I am here. And here we all may say, and there's good reason to say, I want to be like David. That's true. Before we're like David, we are much more like the Israelites. We're much more like the cowardly, oppressed, afflicted, maligned people who have a great enemy arrayed against them, who in our flesh have no hope of facing him. But as we back away, we see that Jesus has stepped forward, that he is the champion that God's people need. He is the one who has stood before the wrath of God and the enemies of God's people to fight on our behalf. And we, friends, should know that our greatest enemy, our greatest foe, has been beheaded not by our awesomeness, but by King Jesus. And that's where we have to start. If you want to understand this text rightly, you have to start there. But then once we see that, once we see who Christ is, what he has done, then we can and say, how now do we think about David and you? David and me. How do we apply this story through the lens of Christ? And I have three ways i want to think about using this text what does this text hold for us in applying this today first this text should encourage us to boldly declare god's victory boldly declare god's victory why did david defeat goliath first samuel 17:46 that all the earth may know that there is a god in israel brothers and sisters Our king has come and has conquered the enemy and has freed every one of you in here trusting in Christ. He has won victory. And the purpose for which Goliath was defeated is the same kind of purpose for which you have been freed from sin. That you may go and declare that there is a God among his people and that his name is Jesus. Your job and mine is not simply to say we're free and enjoy the life that we have now. We are called, like Israel, to go and plunder the domain of Satan. We run now after our king, not in order to gain victory, but because he has gained victory, and we go to release captives. We go into our neighborhoods, and into our jobs, and into our schools, and we declare That King Jesus has freed us from every guilt, every shame, from consumerism, from things that claim our affections and draw our loyalties to whom they do not belong. We go and we tell those around us, Jesus is King. He has showed it. He has freed you. Not only that, but we go to all the nations. We go we pray, we give to see the gospel go forward into every corner of our globe as a demonstration of this. So friends, take courage if you are a follower of King Jesus. This text is a missionary text. This is a text that t- calls us to go forward and know that God isn't just relying on your strength, that you've got to be the best, most persuasive person in the world. He has done what is necessary. We sang this earlier, uh, we sang this in a, a Mighty Fortress. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dust ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same. And he must, must win the battle. So friends, this is a text that should embolden us. If you want to say how do I apply this, I think the the clearest way of applying this is that we go forward and we proclaim that there is a God who lives. And he has defeated an enemy. And if, if you are here with us this morning and you know yourself not to be a Christian, if you're visiting here, we are glad that you are with us. And we want to declare this same message to you that Christ has defeated every sin. That all that is necessary for life and salvation is not up to you. But that he is our champion. And now he calls us to cast our sin upon him. Don't take it lightly. But turn and trust in him. You can go out and battle as your own champion. but Friends, that's, that's a losing way. Christ has gone out. And he can be your champion. So if you're not now a Christian, what we would tell you is if you want that to be true... Turn to him. Trust in him. Repent of sin. Cast all your sin on him. And you can join us. You can be part of God's people. Freed from your greatest enemy. And if you if you have questions about that. If you do that today. you can You can do that right now at your seat. You don't have to come and talk to me. You're not going to become a Christian just because you prayed with a pastor. Or walk an aisle. Or do anything like that. You repent and believe. But I would love if you decide to do that today or have questions about that. Come talk to me. Talk to a Christian friend who brought you to church today. We would love nothing more this afternoon than to grab lunch and say, "Let's let's talk about this. How do we follow Christ in this way?" Now, second, if you uh, the second way of applying this, if you want to stand firm in trials, we need to see God's faithfulness and cultivate faith in the mundane if you want to stand firm when you're facing trial, like David does when Goliath, you cultivate that faith in the mundane things of day to day life. Right? David is not a hero because he was born brave and courageous. No, the faith of this young shepherd was actually forged out in a pasture out of Bethlehem, away from the spotlight, Nobody looking on him, ignored probably by many of his brothers, by his father left out there. No humdrum. But in this normal kind of day-to-day, he's cultivating his faith in the Lord. He's playing the lyre and worshiping this Lord. He is seeing the Lord protect and provide Attacking the flock, he's, he's protecting his flock, he sees his faith grow as the Lord delivers his sheep over and over. It's, it's like his faith is a steel, it's a sword and a blacksmith's forge, over and over, getting pounded and hammered out and growing stronger. So David's faith was not first tested when he stood on a battlefield in front of Goliath, it was tested over and over in the fields of Bethlehem. And when he came to this ultimate test, he stood firm because over and over he had seen God's faithfulness and cultivated his own faith. Now, I know that for for many of you, you may say, well, right now I am facing the greatest trial of my life. I know for some of you that is true. And if that's the case, if you're there, this text says, look back, look at God's faithfulness thus far. He can continue to carry you. But for many of you, I know you would say, like, life is really normal. You know, every week, just uh, small talking and say, how's this week? Same, and you ask me and I say, pretty, pretty normal, just normal week. But friends, that doesn't mean that we are not every day cultivating the life of faith. The, the Christian life, they may seem very normal and mundane, but the Christian life is over and over an act of faith. So parents, when you trust God to parent your children with grace on days when you feel like you are on your last nerve already when you get home, that's an act of faith to parent in that way. When you are denying yourself some pleasure that you know is sinful and that you crave so badly, that's an act of faith. God is holding out better things for you and you are in faith saying, I want the better thing rather than the sin." kids, when you are just reading your Bible on a normal day, adults, when you get up and you are tired and you're reading the Bible, or when you are praying at night and you say, this is the last thing I want to do, that is an act of faith. And none of those like taken by themselves may seem all that important today or tomorrow or the next day, but on the day of your testing, you'll find that these little acts of faithfully walking with Jesus have built in you A life that is able to stand firm and look to Him and see His faithfulness. Friends, don't just think that one day you will be tried and tested and that you will stand firm just because. Cultivate faith in the mundane, the everyday normal things that you are doing. And then when you are tested, you've laid a foundation so that your faith can stand firm. And finally, final way of applying this. Remember Remember that the Lord is with you. Remember the words of David that he calls to the people of Israel and to Goliath. The battle is the Lord's. And for those who are in Christ, what is true of David is now true of us. The spirit of the Lord that came upon David, that rushed upon him, it now resides in you, Christian. It resides among us, church. The victorious king now dwells among his people. And if you, if you follow what I think the winds of culture would say, I want to stand firm. And they would say, well, where do I look if I want to stand firm? It would say, look inside yourself. Find strength to fight the battles and the strength that is in you. But God's word just shows us a better way. God's word says, don't look at yourselves. Don't just look with the eyes of the flesh and see what's right there on the surface. Look with the eyes of faith. Look backwards at God's faithfulness to you over and over. And remember that that same God who has carried you through high and low, who has been with you in Christ, is with you today. And then lift your eyes, fainting Christian. Lift your eyes and look up to the living God. The one who dwells now with us. Because no matter how great the foe that stands against God's church We are told over and over that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Friends, the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness, your steadfast love that you have shown to us multitudes of times. And we ask that because of your faithfulness we would stand firm in the day of our trial. Thank you for sending Christ, the one who we know has done battle and won a victory that we could never win on our behalf. We pray even in our lives as we walk through this life, we would walk with him and that our faith would be strengthened as we look
0: to him. We pray that even now in the name of Jesus. Amen.